I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's very nice to be here talking to Rachel. Um, I think we first met a few years ago, and I always like that moment when you read a novel, where you meet a novelist, where you've already read one of their books. And so I just read The Flamethrowers, and I think it's always fascinating to discover kind of the ways in which the writer does match the kind of style that you'd kind of seen for the book and the ways in which it doesn't. Um, I then kind of went backwards, I read Tales from Cuba, so I quite like now jumping forwards um, to The Mars Room, which is an amazing book, I think, like a real tour de force, um, extremely moving technically. And that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight, I think, really kind of interesting and innovative. Before we get into the, the chat, I thought that Rachel should read something. So Rachel's going to now talk. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for coming. I love this bookstore, and I'm flattered to think I'm a friend of the LRB bookshop. Uh, I think I was last here five years ago. And the difference between then and now is that um, I have to wear these glasses now <laughs> to read this book. And the reason why is that they have shrunken all the text in all the books. And it's global. It's in British books as well as American ones. I don't know if you guys have noticed. <laughs> all right. This is from very late in my book. And um, it tells you very little about the reading experience with the Mars Room, but that's OK, because no one passage is going to do what everything in the book does. I don't think there's anything you need to know, except this guy lives in San Francisco, but that becomes clear. Kurt Kennedy woke up with two empty rosé bottles and a headache. The stewardess, he gets that you don't call them that anymore, but the other term has never taken up residence in his mind. Anyway, the bitch took his drink away while he slept. Not the rosé, which had been in the knapsack between his knees, but his rum and coke, which he'd ordered and wasn't finished drinking when she removed it from his tray. And that was the thing about an international flight. The booze was free and you drank it and no one bothered you about how much. They weren't supposed to cut you off. He put on the help light over his seat. He was going to insist on another drink because he wasn't done with the one she took away. The stewardess arrived and told him she took his drink because he was sleeping. He said that it exactly helped him sleep and was why he needed it back. She bent down close. You and I know it's a silly rule, but you can't bring your own wine bottles on the plane. 
trying to butter him up with her you and I. I've got plans when I step off this bird and you aren't coming with me, old lady. She was probably 40. Actually, she was a good looking broad and he'd take a 40 year old. Kurt himself was 54. A woman his own age, the thought of it made him want to puke. But a lot of things were suddenly making him want to puke. He might puke for no reason. He didn't feel very good. He'd been out all night in Cancun and had about 10 nightclub stamps inked over the back of his hand. The last half of the night he could not remember. He had an image of getting into someone's Jeep, a man older and even drunker than he was, and the guy could not get out of his parking spot, just kept ramming the car in front and then the car behind, then repeating until Kennedy yelled at him to stop and got out of the guy's Jeep. But what happened then? He doesn't know. He woke up at his Novotel and had pissed himself in his clothes. At least he would not miss his flight, and he had time to shower because, as every man knows, that's supposed to wash off the misery and get him shipshape for traveling. He retched into the methane-fuming drain. People don't know how to make anything, can't even vent a sewer pipe. He got the wine at duty-free because he could and because he wanted something of his own to drink on the plane made him claustrophobic to have to sit and wait for them to bring you something. Just watching the cart not come down the aisle made his mouth drier than Death Valley, and his medication already made his mouth dry. He wasn't going to wait. He was going to bring his own beverages on the airplane for the long flight from Cancun to San Francisco. Got the two bottles in a coffee cup, opened one of the bottles at the gate, and started pouring, tipping the knapsack like it was a drink a t-shirt wedged between the two bottles to keep them from clinking. He would not call it loaded, how he felt when he got on the plane. He was only starting to relax. He'd been on edge the whole time in Cancun. It was supposed to be a vacation, but minute by minute, he kept checking in with himself to find out if he was having fun, and he didn't know, and this made him anxious, so he took another clonopin and lay down, or got up, or went to the bar, or walked around in the sand, but it burned his feet, and he had to face down the fact that he was not a beachy type person, and just wanted to get home and go to the Mars room and see Vanessa put her body in his lap. It was the only way in the world he knew to get peace. Every person deserves peace. He meant whether anyone deserves anything is beside the point. He needed certain things to feel okay. Vanessa was among those things. He needed dark and heavy curtains because he had a sleeping problem. He needed clonopin because he had a nerve problem. He needed Oxycontin because he had a pain problem. He needed liquor because he had a drinking problem. <laughs> money because he had a living problem and show him someone who doesn't need money. He needed this girl because he had a girl problem. Problem is maybe the wrong word. He had a focus. Her name was Vanessa. That was her stage name, but for him it was her name name because it was the one he got to know her by. Vanessa filled in around all the hazier thoughts in his mind with something that was specific and real. When he was near her, he felt good. Every person deserves to feel good, especially him, since he was himself. Sure, you can bring wine on the plane, he told the old stewardess, crease lines forming around her mouth as she took in his reply. He gestured to the overhead bins full of other passengers' bottles of duty-free wine. 
Unfortunately, you can't drink it while you're on the plane. Too late, he thought at her. He had drained both bottles, one at the gate and the other just after takeoff. He pressured her to bring him another drink, pointed out that there was another hour to go, and he had a dry thing with his, with his mouth. She was suddenly conciliatory, too much so. She's scamming me, he knew, and indeed, she brought him a straight Coke with no airplane bottle, claiming the drink had rum in it. There was a couple next to him turned inward to each other like they didn't really want to talk, but he tried anyway. Sometimes shooting the breeze with people kills time. He told them about his boat, and he didn't actually have a boat, but he'd been talking for so long, like he did have a boat, that he basically, at this point, owned a boat. But they weren't interested. So he turned to the kid across the aisle, started telling him about his boat. Sometimes he thought of people as kid, called grown men kid, but this kid was a kid kid, Kurt realized. How old are you, he asked. Thirteen. Nice. Kurt said it with a way to go, all right kind of tone. Kids like to be encouraged. He was rewarding this kid for being 13. 13 was puberty, old enough to get off. He'd like to show the kid a picture of Vanessa. There was a porn actress who looked a bit like her, but he didn't have a photo of the actress. A woman came up the aisle and leaned over the kid. Kid got up from his seat. A man came up the aisle and sat where the kid had been. They were a family, and they were switching. Nice knowing you, Kurt said, and the kid said, you too. No one would talk to him, or rather listen, so he got his book out, Chicken Hawk, a Vietnam thing he'd been trying to read for three years. It interested him because he had begun long ago telling people he was in combat, but he never was. He was stationed in Germany. The book was about a helicopter pilot, and Kurt wasn't even halfway through. Because it was taking him so long to read, and it was a secondhand copy with cheap paper, he kept it in a Ziploc bag. He read a few pages on the airplane as he sipped his rum and coke with no rum thanks to the cunt stewardess, but reading was difficult for him. The problem with reading was how relentless it was. You managed to concentrate long enough to read a whole paragraph, and then there was another one, and they just kept coming. <laughs> He did it mainly as an act for the other people on the plane, except no one was watching him or noticing. He put Chicken Hawk back in the Ziploc. He could not get his screen to work, so he closed his eyes and planned for when he'd be home and could go see Vanessa. The first time Kurt ever saw her, he'd been keeping company with a hothead named Angelique. He and Angelique were dancing in the tunnel thing at the back of the Mars room. They called it dancing, but the whole time, you're just trying to rub up on them. There was another couple in the tunnel thing, a businessman and Vanessa. Her body was pressed against the businessman. She danced with this guy like she really meant it. She was glued to this man in a suit in her bra and underwear. Angelique said loudly that Vanessa was breaking a rule. And was she high? What drug was she on? Because you can't fuck in the tunnel. It was fine to massage men's laps with your buttocks, but if you did that frontally, other girls would get on your case. Yeah, I'm high, Vanessa said, swaying into the businessman. It's a drug called happiness. You should try it sometime. She continued to grind against the businessman, the man himself taking no notice of the argument between the two women and instead moving against pretty Vanessa like a man might dance with his wife on their golden anniversary or in a TV commercial spotlighting an occasion like that to sell Viagra. <laughs> Kurt thought it was funny. Later, Vanessa passed him on the aisle, and he told her so. She said, I don't like to talk, but if you want a lap dance, I'm 20th song. 
So he gave her an Andrew Jackson, as the girls called them, and that's how it started. The usual way it started with any girl at the Mars room, except this chick was not just using him for the money. Something was happening between them. They all did a stage show, or were supposed to, and when it was Vanessa's turn, he sat closer to the stage than usual. When Angelique saw him alone and tried to offer company, he told her to get lost. Vanessa had a song that was clearly hers to perform to. She moved inside the song like it was about her. The singer had a weird voice. Kurt didn't know if it was a man or a woman, and that seemed pretty odd, but it fit with this chick, even if she herself was 100% girl. Come on down to my place, baby. We'll talk about love. Vanessa wore mirrored sunglasses that gave a comic edge to her performance. She put her legs up, and they were the most gorgeous legs he'd ever seen. Some of the girls there had pale and flabby legs, shapeless tubes that reminded him of glass syringes. Vanessa's legs were leg legs, long and tapered. It was a joke, comedy, that this world-class chick was on stage at the Mars Room. He was in on it, you better believe it. She was high on life, the way everyone ought to try sometime, but hadn't or couldn't because they were not free the way she was, this sexy chick with her amazing legs. Cute ass, her tits were cute too, grabbable, handful-sized. And then she showed the whole thing, bending upside down from behind. That was his favorite, the way it all looked suspended from behind when they bend over. She was doing it just for him. She knew, this chick really knew. That was the thing about Vanessa. She wasn't an idiot barking up the wrong tree. It was all the right tree. She understood how to turn him on and she was doing it. She sat with him when her stage show was over. Know what I like about you? It was a setup for him to answer his own question, everything. He liked to be the one to do the talking. He felt good with her. He felt comfortable. He loved to touch her. His hands were everywhere. He gave her 20 after 20, went out and got more money and gave her that too, got more and gave her that because he really, really, really liked this girl. He started going more frequently to the Mars room. He was on workman's comp and had a lot of free time and he was under a spell. He spent everything on her. All she had to do was turn and look at him, seated in his lap, and he'd hand over the bills. He was supposed to be at home, recovering from his accident, but he got bored at home. He'd crashed outside the projects on Potrero Hill and mangled his leg, slid all the way across the intersection with his knee trapped underneath the very large and heavy gas tank of his K100 motorcycle. Had four operations and walked now with a limp. They called it an accident, but to Kurt, it was attempted murder. Kids in the projects had dumped motor oil in the middle of the street so he would wipe out. He had tried to serve legal documents, simply doing his job, to an address in the projects repeatedly without luck. On his sixth visit, he knew, as soon as he hit the intersection and went into a slide, what they'd done to him, but there was no way to find the actual kids and prove it. He was stuck at home, waiting for his knee to heal. He was told it might not. His apartment became a waiting room with no end to the waiting. He would shuffle around, sit on his couch, flip through a magazine, change the TV channel, stare into the fridge, watch cars move down the street, do his 10 exercises, watch cars try to parallel park. Hardly anyone knew how to parallel park. He'd sit on the bed, read the same sentence over and over in his book, Chicken Hawk, realize he was doing that, 
put the book in its Ziploc, change TV channels, and finally get up, ride over to the Mars room, and limp in to see if Vanessa was working. He knew a lot of girls there now, but the only one he liked was Vanessa. He told her he was a homicide investigator. It wasn't a total lie. He wanted to investigate the kids who tried to kill him by putting a lake of motor oil in the intersection near the projects. He had learned not to tell people he was a process server because when he explained how you serve papers, the tactics you are forced to use, it didn't sound noble. People treated him like he was some kind of scumbag repo man. He talked to Vanessa about all the tensions in his life without giving details. He talked and talked. He touched her bare skin with his hands and said things, expressed feelings, and got attached. He got attached to her. It's true that that gives a wholly misleading impression <laughs> of the rest of the novel. I wanted, like, just in a sentence, this novel centers on a, on a girl called Romy, who is, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that Vanessa and Romy. No, not at all. That's I'm fine. I'm to say that. Are the same person. Um, who is serving two life sentences um, in Stanville. For killing that guy. For killing that guy. Um, and that's kind of where the novel opens. And I guess my first question is, it's called The Mars Room. Yeah. But it could have been called Stanville Jail, as it were. And kind of what, I wanted to talk a little bit about the relationship you set up between the outside world, as it were, symbolized by the Mars Room in a way, and the inside world of the prison. Starting with the title, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, titles are really hard for me. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you have Terrible trouble with titles. Reasons. And part of the difficulty is like you come up with a title maybe sometimes before you write a book. And then you write the book, and it's not necessarily going to continue to fit with its title. And yet once the book is written, it's like you've raised a child, and then you're meant to give it a name, right? <laughs> so the hermeneutic of it doesn't sort of allow for the right logical moment to give the book its perfect fitted name, although some people are quite good at that. Originally, I had this working title that's from Nietzsche, from the last Nietzsche book, Eke Homo, which is a favorite of mine, like right before he completely it. lost it. <laughs> yeah, and the chapters have these really great titles, like why I write such great books, or why I write such why good I books. Why I Am a Destiny as well. Yeah, and, and then it's yeah. Why I Am a Destiny. So I was thinking <laughs> I Am a Destiny is like an interesting like declaration, and it fits within this Nietzschean concept that um, I've always been attracted to, but I felt was oddly a form of great comfort for me writing this book, which is like love of fate. So it's like adapting to an already predetermined shape that is yours that you cannot change. Um, it seems quite powerful in a way for somebody like perhaps who's been given to life sentences. Not that she would read Nietzsche and be comforted. It's more like me as the author thinking in to the larger scope and meaning of how to extend your own life beyond its borders when you've been condemned. Yeah. But uh, that title had too many syllables. Um, so I didn't know what to title it. And um, I'm sorry this is like a little bit name droppy, but um, I sent the book to Don DeLillo and he said, I think you should call it The Mars Room. And there's this club, The Mars Room, which you've now heard about, where the narrator, Romy Hall, works there. She did work there. She met this guy, Kurt Kennedy, and um, ended up murdering him. And that's not really a surprise because it's already happened before the book 
opens. Um, and at first, that title seemed too narrow to me because I associate it with a specific place. And it's kind of based on, it's based on a real place that no longer exists in San Francisco. And anybody familiar with it would recognize right. it. Um, and I didn't want to delimit my book to this idea of like a seedy joint in the Tenderloin in San Francisco in the 1990s. But having the title suggested to me by somebody else, I suddenly saw a kind of more um, figurative interest in the word Mars and the word room and what happens when you put them together because Mars is mysterious and distant, also the god of war, obviously, and then room is very closed and solitary and confining. So I saw this sort of like pressure between the two words um, and uh, so it, it it yeah. took on more for me in that regard. And also, like, the only real Mars room that I know of is in the Palace of Versailles, and it's dedicated to the God of War and has these, like, incredibly violent frescoes on the wall and ceiling. So that seemed good. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not meant to just be the club, but um, maybe what happens to her is that she goes to a place that is another world inside of this one. I mean, prisons are truly different places. And uh, I've noticed over the years that like people are like, you know, complaining about capitalism, which is fine. They're like, well, you know, bourgeois life is a prison. And I, I can <laughs> assure you that it is not. Um. That that's a totally different world inside prison. And it's the first thing people want to tell you is how different it is and how hard it was to adjust to. And how much that seems to involve cutting yourself off from your ties to the outside world. Sometimes, for many people, it does involve that, yeah. yeah. But there are other things, too. I think that um, people acquire, I mean, this is just me talking from the outside. I've never been incarcerated, but I'm close to several people who are. Uh, and I, I guess I've just thought about it a lot. Um, and now I've done some readings in prisons, which is also gives me different impression than I ever had before when my... Uh, interactions are very one-on-one -on -one with people, it's just friendships. But when you go, when you're in a room with like 60 incarcerated women, you 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 know you read a crowd, and the energy is very different than when you're just sitting at a table talking with one person. And um, one thing I feel like that is makes it such a different world is uh, the acumen that people develop. Like their psychological acuity is very heightened. They're really a cut above in that sense. There are forms of intelligence that get honed by necessity because of the environment. Like all you have is your personality. So people are incredibly deft at how they read others and how they choose to react. And you know, yeah. whether that's with like cunning or threats or charm or seduction or intimidation or violence or whatever, people are very good at presenting themselves. One thing this, brilliant, this novel is brilliant at is articulating kind of power relations on a very microscopic level, I think, between people, that kind of psychological acuity you're talking about. And I'm interested in how far you think they were kind of almost parallel universes that were kind of metaphors for each other. Like, there's a moment, I think, where Romy says there were cops in every environment, you know, that, like, there can be cops inside the prison in terms of self-policing and other people policing each other. Yeah, well, um, that's true in life, too, don't yeah. you think? I mean, there's, like, a lot of people that seem like they're finished with the work of uh, conforming to their own Hippocratic Oath, if they take <laughs> one, who are, like, going house to house, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, why do you Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Right. 
I'm kind of interested also just as a fiction writer, like thinking of your three novels, and in one sense they're very distinct in the kind of time and place. Um, but like every novelist, there are also certain obsessions, I think, which recur. And one of them is the notion of a world. And I wanted you slightly to talk about this because it really fascinates me. I think there are some, you know, you very much seem to find most inspiration in tight kind of slight communities that often maybe don't have a huge relationship to the wider world or a vexed relationship to that like the red brigades or does that make any sense is this a kind of yeah although i think of that as a relation to the wider world i mean um yeah but i just mean worlds that have their own kind of quite specific codes or would you say that everyone lives in such a world I don't know if everybody does. I don't think I would feel comfortable making a pronouncement like that. But yeah, I am interested in codes among people. I mean, I don't know if this will illuminate your hunch, but um, like as a person in my own life, I've always been interested in being in environments where I can't read the codes and like regular old staid education and book reading is not going to help me. And that's always sort of been my thing, is to like be in an environment where you have to be schooled by experience and by watching and listening to people. But with this book, there are a lot of different things that went into it um, that we could get into, like about the, where the narrator is from and um, her peer group growing up, because it's all extremely familiar to me. Uh, but in terms of the world building, it's interesting that you said that because Long before I wrote this book, I had this feeling that my next book would take place in an institution. But it wasn't necessarily going to be a carceral institution, although okay. I did not arbitrarily choose that. I've been thinking about like the way society is structured and troubled and vexed by the idea of prisons and particularly the bizarre arbitrary unit of the life sentence that you use your life segment no matter how long it is. Like, you could live four years or 40, but you can pay back the state for the harm you've committed with your endlessly depletable resource called your life. So that's always interested me. But this thing about an institution, like I thought, I want to write a novel that is contained within a space. And a space doesn't just mean a room. It means an institutional logic that's encoding how people move through yeah. the space and what they say. Like Playtime is one of my favorite movies because I think it's such a brilliant critique of modernist architecture because it alters the way the people in the movie behave, right? Yeah. And uh, there's a Frederick Wiseman movie about a Neiman Marcus department store in Dallas. Like, having worked a ton of crappy jobs growing up, you know, in restaurants or doing retail or whatever, you really do, those are real spaces. Like, even if it's a chain restaurant, like I worked at the International House of Pancakes, do you guys know it? Uh, and you would think that they're the same everywhere and that it has no specificity to it. But in fact, going into the one where I worked again many years later, I was plunged into sense memory of the logic of this place and how it shaped our behavior. So I think that that was of interest to me specifically with this book, which is more narrow in a way than the flamethrowers because people aren't having like reveries about, I, I, and it's, the history is flowing through them in a different way yeah. it's because it's there's less outside in it and um they have less control over determining their lives but certainly they like they are infected by institutional logic but then they subvert it um in ways that are, are like what i've learned from my mentors real life friends who are lifers is that they participate in this um incredibly collective form of 
intelligence. And like the rules change to try to prevent them from these um, circumventions of the rules, but then they just adapt new strategies right away and people are capable of, they're quite clever in, in their yeah. own way. So, and that was of interest to me. And then the humor and what I said about um, the way that like, people are stripped of what a sociologist like Irving Goffman would call your identity kit, like your ability to present yourself and have a background and signal and not just like class, but the, the whole person, like how you're coming across to somebody else, you're, that is purposely taken away from you. So then all you have is this kind of theatrical air. All you have is your personality. Yeah. Can we talk about a bit more about Romy, the kind of main narrator? And we'll get into a little bit maybe Whatever you want. to the construction. But because um, I was, it as it certainly, when I was reading it, I don't know if you feel this, like when you have kind of novelist friends, there is this terrible Philistine kind of way of reading where you're thinking, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of Rachel. I realized like kind of so when any moment which sort of slightly intersects with kind of any fact I knew about you. So the fact that Romy also was growing up in San Francisco in Sunset, and that's an area you kind of grew up in as well, yeah? I did, did. grow up there, um, yeah. And I kind of like, how did you get partly the voice, which is so important to the novel, was that something that took years of kind of writing, rewriting, and partly also just the decision to kind of partly ground it in that area you knew? So insightful. Um, Yes, gee, where do I start? Um, th that voice was difficult for me to get. I mean, once I got it, um, it rolled right along. But it's funny how voice works. Like the piece that I read, that voice was really easy. I mean, that's like the first draft, basically, what I read. <laughs> Although maybe I shouldn't advertise that. But it just, it came out whole cloth in yeah. one piece because the logic of it and its propulsion is being generated from sentence to sentence, yeah. right? So that's just the kind of thing that you then don't have to change afterward. But with her, it was not only a voice that I needed to develop, but like in writing the whole long first chapter, she uh, has been convicted of this murder and given a sentence of two consecutive life sentences plus an enhancement of six years. And she's on a bus going to prison. And in that chapter, I needed to be able to establish the way that she speaks, who she is, what her predicament is, and like the, the whole, you know, um, texture of her register and like that determines so much else in yeah. the novel, I'm sure you know. So it took me like two years to do that. And um, the problem I had, I mean, just to be completely, I'll experiment with candor. Uh, it was hard for me <laughs> to um, figure out who she really was. Like I knew yeah. that she'd gotten a life sentence and was going to prison, but I really came up against the irrefutable fact the facticity that I would never go to prison for life. I hope never to spend one day of my life in jail, although I've spent a lot of time in jails and prisons, but I go there by choice and then I get to leave at the end of the day, which is complicated in a different way because my friends don't get to leave. But when you're a middle-class person in the United States, the fact is your destiny is not to go to prison. And that's not because you're a good person. It's because yeah. your life has been determined by all these forms of privilege that have been offered to you. And I didn't want to make her like somebody who was, you know, falsely accused or like in prison for political crimes, because the fact is most people in California, 90% in the state prison system are there for what the state considers, this is not my language, serious violent felonies. So I wanted somebody who was going to reflect something of the reality of the place, because why else? 
do yeah. it. And there's so many misconceptions in the U.S. about mass incarceration. People are like, oh, there's all these people there for nonviolent drug crimes. You know, actually only a tiny percentage. So if you want to care about people who've been invisibilized, you have to care about people who really have committed difficult acts of harm. And um, so I had to kind of think about something that she would have done that would have reflected that. But in order to do it believably, I needed to have a range and depth and an understanding yeah. of her character. And um, I had been writing these passages. I didn't even know if they were for that book about San Francisco in the 1980s in the sunset, which is a neighborhood where I grew up and in that decade. And then the Tenderloin in the 1990s, which is a neighborhood where I worked as a young woman. And I grew up with somebody who did end up going to prison and then later died. And his death was very much related to what happened to him in prison. And it, it's not about him, but it marked my life in a way that was fairly significant. And I started thinking about all these people that I grew up with who, just to put it quite frankly, whose lives turned out really differently from my own. And it's like almost everyone I grew up with. And I started thinking about the past and it became like very bleak to me because I would, like I Googled the name of one of my best friends who lived on my street and I'd been out of touch with her for a long time. And there was nothing online except for her name was in a court transcript that a court clerk had uploaded on the internet. You know, sometimes there's like the whole transcript there. And she was in Stockton, which is a Central Valley, like she'd moved from San Francisco. And she had been present and was subpoenaed to appear at a court trial for uh, against a defendant who had um, done an armed robbery of a 7-Eleven. And she was walking into the 7-Eleven to buy something and was talking on her phone. And they were like, um, subpoenaed witness, I won't say her name, explained to the judge that she's been a lifelong drug user and doesn't remember the occasion. And that's the only mark of my friend. And so um, I hate to be so ghostly personal, but in a certain way, although the book is funny, and that's why I read a funny part, because <laughs> I don't want people to be afraid of it. But um, those parts of the book were kind of a way for me to try to account for the loss of a world and a loss of most of the people from that world. And so a kind of reckoning. And so I made yeah. her one of us. Like, she has my friend group. Is that probably more than you want to know? No, no, it's not. No. Um, one thing that fascinated me, I'm reading it, was also that this voice is so authoritative and kind of moving and interesting and then one of the things you do which you've done before is to then actually vary. one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why united healthcare offers a variety of flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more so whether you're between jobs coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Very that, like one that I was kind of interested when I started the novel thinking, oh, this is going to be a purely first-person novel. And I guess I had a kind of question about structure, which is at watch point, it becomes actually quite collage almost, that there are a kind of variety of voices and of narrative techniques. And did you always kind of think, I'm going to have to give it that kind of context of kind of polyphony or kind of extra voice? Or was there ever a moment when it was just going to be Romy? Yeah, I thought maybe it would just be her. And I, I meant to answer the next part, like about the tone of her voice. Yeah. Like it ended up with this kind of syncopated, would you call that syncopation? Yeah. He knows more about literature than I do, in a way. Like, like she, uh, no, she, you know, like she's going back and forth between her yeah. past and her present, and um, maybe there's a compression to it also. And I think that that it has these elisions, and I think it's because she's speaking in what I think of for her as a kind of testimonial urgency. If that makes sense, because she's already been condemned. And so she's giving an account and it's very specific. Like it's not going to just have long ruminations about this yeah. or that. Like whatever memory she's providing is for some reason to make an impression on the person who's reading it. But yeah, I think I would have liked initially to think that I could write a book that would just have one person's voice. But pretty quickly, other people leaked in. Um, and I think part of that was that I was having such an expanded experience of the state of California. Like, there's this, you know, scholarly term carceral geography, which sounds like a little boring or fancy or something, but it's quite apt when you think about the way the state of California is laid out and who gets jammed into the criminal justice system. Like, the jail is over here, the court complex is over here, there are sheriff's buses shuttling back and forth all day long. Once people's trial is over, you know, if it's a murder trial, it's on the ninth floor of Clara Shortridge Fultz. It's a very specific feeling on that floor. Um, I've spent a lot of time there. Once people get sentenced and are convicted, then they're sent way up the Central Valley, deep into industrial farmland. And the women's prison is all surrounded by almond orchards. And those almond orchards have been automated. So there aren't any humans in the fields. And so the like what happened in California, like with labor and agriculture, this is all part of the story. And you have to have a light hand in putting things like that into the story. But I characters popped up who were sort of like, I can tell that part of the story. And um, like I have this character, Doc, yeah. who um, is a bad cop who's serving life without possibility of parole. Um, on a sensitive needs yard because other prisoners will kill him immediately if he's put in general population. And he came about after I went um, to this prison and uh, met this guy um, and was invited into his cell to talk to him. And he's not in my book, you know, it's just like a seed or inspiration. But I got like the drift of this person's essence very strongly, being in this tiny closed room with him and his photographs of these Harley Davidsons that he obviously used to own and certainly no longer can because he's serving life without possibility of parole, which means he will die 
in the prison and then be shipped out and that's when he'll leave. Um, but I got this sense of something about him, like very intimate. And so then that became part of the story. And I guess I sort of like the challenge of um, interfering in. with yeah. myself a little bit. It's interesting, you, like, you talked a bit about flow. And one of the things that I'm always envious of reading your books is I think the way you manage to give kind of all the satisfactions of, call it old fashioned narrative, of kind of actual real people with real kind of feelings and plots and kind of, and at the same time, what you might call a more avant-garde kind of driftiness. And um, it's interesting you use this word elision. Um, and I know from our kind of conversations that there's a certain tradition of kind of the avant-garde or kind of Dirac or kind of Lispector as well. I know we both like and kind of, I'm interested in your relationship to that avant-garde tradition and whether you ever want to push it more in the direction of pure flow and kind of driftness or whether you need that kind of narrative sort of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I don't kind of, need it as an idea, you yeah. know. I think with each book, um, maybe a lot of writers feel this way. I feel like with each book, like I finally have a fresh chance to perhaps piss off my publishers and never be published <laughs> again. Like you're trying to come up with a thing where you will not compromise, right? Like that's the objective. But then you kind of get to know your old self in a way by what it is that you do um, that doesn't feel like a compromise, but does feel maybe somewhat traditional. Um, but in terms of plot, I guess I always say a little goes a really <laughs> long way. Um, I'm not that interested in plotting. I heard some people are. Uh, but, you know, this book kind of takes on, a, in a certain sense, like a classic form. Like, I don't know. Um, I mean, there aren't that many novels that take on this form, but um, somebody goes into prison and then something happens and then something else happens. And I won't say what for people who haven't read the book. Um, but in that sense, the plot structure was already created for me in a way. I mean, there's certain smaller things, but what I like most, I guess, is uh, voices and dialogue. It's like fun to me, and I really wanted the book to reflect a kind of vitality I feel I want to and have and will continue to appreciate in people inside prison and also just people in tough situations. Like, yeah. it seems kind of cheap and easy to make things miserable. Like, that just seems sort of lazy somehow because it doesn't include what really happens among people, which is like a continuance of this other thing, which is uh, that you, you become a humanity of people no matter where you are. And inside prison is definitely a humanity. Um, but in terms of form, I think I'm also interested in the, um, in the textural change, like surface transition in a way like from one tonality to another, uh, like making abrupt transitions, because yeah. the narrators have really different tones. And then there's these kind of interstitial pieces in the book that are not really written by anybody. Like there's a list of jobs yeah. that um, people have had uh, that, you know, it's just like a one page list. And then of course there's Ted Kaczynski's diaries, yeah. which appear in five yeah. places. Can we talk about, like so you used his diaries kind of almost, I mean, they're basically unattributed, but I mean, it's kind of clear 
for the They're attributed, but it's kind of on the, the lawyer said to put it on the copyright page, but <laughs> we, we, no one seems to be able to find it, but they are attributed. Um, but could you talk a little, you know, the, what, the decision to include that too, and how that relates to the kind of rest of the novel? Yeah. I was on Ambien, like Roseanne Barr, wasn't she on <laughs> <Yeah>. Ambien? <laughs> so funny. I guess that's a really old joke. Um, the thing about Ambien is just get, go to bed after you take it. It's really simple. Uh, no, I wasn't on Ambien. What, so the decision to include those. Oh. Yeah, so well, had been thinking about Thoreau for a long time, um, even before I started writing this book. And uh, there's an artist named James Benning. Does anybody know his films or work? Uh, whose work I uh, have really liked for a long, long time. And he's also a friend. And he did this art project where he built uh, replicas of Thoreau's cabin from Walden um, and a replica of Ted Kaczynski's cabin from Montana. And he, he hand-built both cabins by himself when he was 72 years old. And they're on his property, uh, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada above Bakersfield. And I visit that property a lot, actually, when I'm going back and forth to see people in prison. And I've slept in both cabins. They're different. Um, the Thoreau cabin has larger windows. It's very light. And the Kaczynski cabin is dark. And it just has a small window. And it's exactly based on Ted's cabin. And in fact, James Benning, when he was building it, uh, wanted to know the exact distance between the joists in the roof of Kaczynski's cabin. And so he wrote to Kaczynski, but was told, well, he probably won't write you back. <laughs> so to try to get him to write him back, he sent the letter to Ted Kaczynski on his birthday and said, happy birthday, Ted. And could you tell me the distance <laughs> between the joists uh, in the roof of your cabin? And um, Ted wrote to another person we know and said, by the way, I believe your friend James Benning has Asperger's syndrome. <laughs> uh, and then he wrote to James Benning and did tell him the distance between the joists. And he said, thanks for the birthday card. Happy birthday to you, too, whenever you have a birthday, <laughs> which is like very funny. But in any case, so James Benning had created this project that at first I didn't really understand it. Um, partly because I wasn't really interested in Ted Kaczynski. I think his manifesto is kind of hackneyed. And um, like my father has a, is a scientist and has a friend who lost his hand because of a bomb that Ted Kaczynski sent. I was like, well, why? But the more I thought about it, the more I understood like the seriousness of the investigation of this artist, James Benning, and what he'd done was kind of to think into, I guess, the tradition of American transcendental thinking and nature and solitude and self-reliance as Thoreau would have it and self-reliance as Kaczynski would have it. And also, of course, <coughs> critiques of the technological destruction of the world, which is a valid thing to consider, although hurting people is not. But misanthropy, right? And like where it veers between those two and what's stable and unstable between them and sleeping in these physical spaces of the cabins is really interesting. So while I was there, I started looking at uh, Ted Kaczynski's actual diaries, which another artist we know had bought at the FBI auction of Ted's stuff, the proceeds of which all went to the victims um, and their families. But the diaries um, were originally written in numerical code, and James Benning decoded them and built a computer program to do that. And I was interested in reading them because of the way that they creep. There's a 
you know, a slow and steady and very relentless um, progression toward anger. At first, it's like, you know, I went out to check my traps and they were fouled with snow, so I cleared them. I came back, I felt good, I did this, I did that, it's an account. I, you know, I killed a porcupine, there were seven tapeworms in its stomach, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's eating rabbits, squirrels, and porcupines, and he's wandering the wilderness and noticing how beautiful it is. But then pretty quickly, um, his autonomy is interfered with by snowmobilers and kids riding motocross bikes. So what does he do? Exactly what you'd do. He breaks into the snowmobiler's cabin, trashes all their stuff, pours oil on the engine of the snowmobiles, and sets them on fire, and also empties their bottles of vodka, <laughs> which my husband said now that he was really serious when he did that, <laughs> like emptying the vodka bottles. Um, so I was interested in the the tone of them also. Like, I don't know, I, it just started doing it. You know, yeah. you these things must happen to you too, where you just sort of go with an instinct, and I recopied some passages from the diaries, and... Um, they were so different than my own hand. I could not have emulated that voice. There's yeah. something very deep rooted about language and how we use it. I mean, I probably sound somewhat like I did when I was seven years old or something. Like there's not much you can really manipulate. And so I took my favorite passages of his diaries, which started to feel like they had a, I don't know, they had a kind of glow to them for me because they weren't mine and put them in the book and they follow this character, Gordon Hauser, and the inference is that he's reading them. Yeah. But for me, they, they, I just realized more recently that I'm not comparing myself to Sebald, but I think they function for me maybe in some way that could have a similarity to the way the postcards function for him because he makes all that stuff up around the postcards. It's the postcard that's real. And the Kaczynski diary is real, but I had real. to form a flow that goes around it like a rock in a stream or something but i also like the tone of them yeah they're angry and i think is what it felt to me was like there are so many kind of themes in this book of kind of structural violence physical violence and basically power in different manifestations but i think gradually as i was reading it because i also had a kind of novelistic worry when it started thinking this is going to be relentless like how are you going to manage to make this is in you know because you're right to say this is actually quite a comical novel um, and it's found, okay. I think there's a really difficult line I'd imagine you're kind of facing between going too kind of comical and human as it were and then it becomes sentimental and on the opposite, if it was just brutal all the way through, there would be a kind of different problem. It's brutal and comical. <clears throat> yeah, brutal and comical, which is always a good no sentiment, combination. Right? Um, but it felt to me like basically freedom was the kind of deep concern of this book and that that's where some of the Thoreau came in and the kind of, that it was all about how you maintain your freedom. In some way, it was reminding me of that kind of Bressel movie, the kind of A Man Escaped, in the sense of a prison movie or a prison narrative where everything is so structured on practical detail. And then you realize, in some way, it's a metaphysical thing, you know, that that's what this is about. I feel like I've got no question here, but it's basically about kind of what concern you felt, you know, like, did you just go into this with a kind of, I'm going to examine this institution, see where this leads me? How kind of aware were you? It goes back to the title discussion, maybe, of kind of what was the central concern of it. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking about this concept of the life sentence, which yeah. um, is mysterious to me, and um, some pretty rudimentary questions that um, I think are, for me, 
were worth asking and are somewhat unanswerable, like questions about um, the concept of justice and the law and the function of the law and like the way that the law is meant to be applied to every person equally, like that is sort of like the modern concept of law, but there are like these ancient heretical concepts of law that maybe, you know, would, ar would arrive someday where the law is individual, right? Where it pertains to each person differently. It's fine to be subject to the law if you've been trained inside of it never to break it. But there are those who are destined, even inside of the quotient of chance, to become unruly and break the law and then be ingested into this space. And I also just wanted to think into, it's all very rudimentary to me, like, well, why are people put in these cages instead of like banished or something else? Like what function does it serve? And also, I wanted to think into this immersive world of people, and some of them people I grew up with, whose whole lives have been conditioned by the criminal justice system and how, how much of a world it is that extends way beyond the edges of the prison. It's interesting, like, DeLillo doesn't know, have any ex personal experience really with prison, but there's a line in his novel Underworld where there are these kids in the Bronx in like the early 1950s, um, who, there's one brother in the book who gets in trouble and ends up going to like a youth authority. And he describes the other kids in youth authority and he says um, the whole world for them was a penal zone. And it is one of the most accurate descriptions of what you start to experience when you commit yourself to seeing the world through this carceral net. Yeah. And so the book in a way, without having a specific objective, was my set of ruminations, I guess, on that net, and maybe less on freedom and more on this idea of destiny and whether okay. you have any control mm -hmm. over it. Like, freedom to me is not a concept I really understand because, like, inside of capitalism, it has come to mean certain things. I mean, maybe for somebody like Ted Kaczynski, he uses that word a lot. Yeah. And obviously, he's just like a really angry guy who has mother issues, I know because I read his 1100 page <laughs> autobiography, Truth Versus Lies. And uh, his idea of freedom basically means like his way or the highway, you know, hooray for me and fuck everybody else. And the narrator would be better off, clearly, if she weren't in prison, which is why I said that thing in the beginning about how like modern life is not a prison yeah. in the way that prison isn't a prison, but yeah. Should we go on to another question? I think we need them. I think we should move to audience questions. Thank you. Thanks for being first. You kind of answered what I wanted to ask you, but just to take it a little further, I was kind of curious how you, you know, how far you went in your own head in imagining a kind of non-carceral society. What, you know, what else can we do? Where else can we go? You know, do we have the right to lock each other up? Yeah. And what are the alternatives? Um, you know, restorative justice. Or right. Where did, where, did, where did you get, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, it's such a fair question, and other people have asked me that too, and there are people, you know, who've dedicated their whole lives to thinking into uh, mass incarceration and what to do, and people who call themselves, like, scholar activists, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I don't know if people know her work, who's really a 
somebody whose work I admire a ton. And I don't feel like I'm in a position to, um, to offer solutions um, of, of what should happen. And maybe anyone who can do that, like in a simple and pithy manner, is to be distrusted highly because it is a really complicated problem. And it's pretty clear that there will be prisons as long as there is private property. And that it's not just to say that prisons are there merely to protect private property, but crimes against people and bodily harm to me seems in a quite complicated way to be intricately related to the worth of individuals by class, at least in the United States. Like a middle class person's body is worth quite a lot. And children understand that very quickly, right? Like your mom takes vitamins and goes to an exercise class and like you have an allergy and so you're eating, you know, there's, I mean, there are many, many ways in which you learn to think of yourself as having value. So many ways, a limitless variety. And there are many people whose bodies are not treated that way from when they're little. And if your body's not treated that way from when you're little, it is very, I think it's difficult to imagine that bodies are valuable because they do have different values in our society. Um, I mean, in terms of practical solutions, I'm interested in the movement of prison abolition. Um, and I consider myself to be something of an abolitioner, as a friend of mine calls us, instead of abolitionist. And that's, uh, that's a way of thinking of a horizon into the future. It's not like close all the prisons and let everybody out tomorrow. It's, um, it's a kind of statist vision, as I understand it, which is about like re reforming a kind of Keynesian system where you have state money going into communities via education and housing and like unpoisoned drinking water and community job training programs so that people are given the support they need long before they commit an act of harm. I mean, that's a dream, but I'm not really the one to come up with that vision. And moreover, being a novelist and also just who I am by personality, like this book isn't about me going city to city and like preaching what we should do as a society because I'm, I'm not interested in that disposition, even politically and psychologically. Like I wake up every day and I start with myself and I, pretty much end there too and just ask like what can I do I sounds corny but to be a good person like I'm not interested in trying to critique or suggest or make you know broad formulations about what other people should be doing or what society should be doing so I'm more of like a one-on-one -on -one person so I like to help individual people and I have like five people in prison who are lifers who do not have any family or resources that they can call upon except for me. And um, I think that that work is useful for them. And so that's what I do. But for each person, it's going to be different. And that's in the short run. But my, you know, as Marguerite Duras says, a life is no small matter. Because in my lifetime, it's, I don't think it's going to change that much. Which came first, the relationships with the people on the inside or the book or the germ of the idea came from meeting people or you had the germ and then went to meet the people? Well, thanks for the question. Um, the germ of the idea was like, it was a long germination, like many years. Um, I have always been interested in prisons. My aunt made a documentary about prisons in 
the 90s, and she uh, had a neighbor who was the editor of this magazine called Prison Life, um, which was for prisoners, and it was traded around in state and federal prisons in the United States. And she would send me copies when I was a teenager, so I was always interested in that realm. Um, and like into Mumia and this idea of political prisons in the United States. Um, the two, they happened simultaneous, but there was forms of separation between them because like I started uh, going into women's prisons as a volunteer with a human rights organization uh, called Justice Now, whose leadership is actually comprised of people serving life sentences. And the president right now, my friend Michael Concepcion, is serving an 80-year sentence, so effectively a life sentence. But he leads this organization from inside, and they document and try to prevent human rights abuses in California prisons. And when I went with them, I wasn't uh, like taking notes and getting information from people to put into my book. I was um, getting to know people and listening to them, which it was a form of help, it turned out, because uh, that's something for people who live in a really crowded space with no privacy and can't even like activate parts of their own soul and personality just to sit quietly alone with somebody in a visiting room because they go on legal visits, so the visiting room's quiet and you, I can sit off away with people. But then I did kind of hire a woman who was like my mentor, consultant, and now is a very close friend who was incarcerated for 23 years and was really excited about my book project. I was excited to value her expertise, which has been accumulated over many decades. Like she's been an institution since she was a child because she was taken by Child Protective Services and then was in youth authority and then went to prison and spent her whole life there. And her knowledge of this prison that she was in is 4,000 women. It's the largest women's prison in the world. And she can draw maps of the whole thing and she understands how all the infrastructure works, like where the septic tanks are and where the cogeneration plant is and like how many minutes it takes the perimeter truck to get around. It's like you, when you spend so much time in a place like that, and also she's just really, really smart. So um, that relationship was explicitly about her helping me so that I could understand what a prison is like in order to write my book. So some parts of it were and some weren't. But in the larger sense, I was going through a passage in my own life, which was about committing to understand everything I could about the society I lived in. And I would have wanted to do that, whether I was writing a book or not. And um, the changes that a person sustains from that are long lasting. And they extend beyond the writing of the book and the relationships I made with people during that time are are con continue now. So I would uh, like I love to ask you a question about Don DeLillo, but I think we could probably be here all night talking about him. Um, so instead, I wanted to ask about um, you thinking about place and space um, because having read your other books, um, it seems like you're very interested in, in representing place and space, um, and so obviously Cuba um, and then New York and and. Obviously, the, the character Reno, who's named, whose name is only ever Reno in the book, um, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you you think about your characters moving through space and place, and kind of I guess you've talked a bit about that already with San Francisco, but just kind of generally, kind of how you approach that or how you think about that. I don't really feel like I have a general approach about place. I mean, I think it's sort of different in each book. Um, like I was, you know, telling. Adam, with this book, 
um, San Francisco rose up in all of its former specificity for me because that's the city that I know. And it seemed like a useful and explanatory place that could give an account of this girl and why she speaks and you know why she expresses herself the way she does based on what she experienced. Um, and it felt like I was doing this work. Um, actually, it does kind of come back to DeLillo in a way because he said something about Underworld once that really affected me. That there's a you know that book moves backwards in time, and when you get to like 1951, it's this very reticulated rendering of the Bronx, the Italian Bronx. And he said, there was a period of time when I was the world's leading expert on four square blocks off Arthur Avenue. And um, I loved that because it, sometimes it feels possibly mundane or a bit narcissistic to be like, this was my world as I experienced it. But then there's another way in which you do become a kind of historian of a place because you were there and the truth of it and even the reticulated grain of it and the characters who passed through it did not make it into any other book except for the one you're going to write. So with San Francisco, it's just, I couldn't generalize how I feel about place, but with this book, I started thinking, I started remembering things as I was writing them. And like I remembered, there's a uh, an apartment that appears in the book that she goes to and it's this, these people called the Scummers. Um, it ends with a Z. And that was a real place, like this house that I went to where they sold purple microdot. And it was this like non-familial family who lived there and they had painted every room in the house with tennis balls soaked in paint where they, you just ricochet around the rooms. And like I've never met anyone who went there or knows what that place is and the person who took me there is like lost to the world and it's gone but i felt like i was doing this work to make them give it a mark and a trace but I, yeah i don't know i mean people live in places <laughs> but I, you know i'm not dedicated to describing or any to places so much but hi despite everything all the knowledge you brought about prisons before you wrote the book, what was the most <laughs> unexpected thing you discovered through the writing of the book about the US prison system? Well, one thing that was surprising to me was that everybody wants to know the most surprising thing. Um, I mean, the most surprising thing is so grisly that uh, I probably shouldn't say it in this room. Uh, one thing I was telling somebody last night, this was, nothing really surprised me. And um, I, I'm not sure why that is, I guess I just had a feeling of what you know people did to survive and etc. Well, actually, okay, I just say this. One surprising thing was that um, when I went, I went to many men's prisons on a bus with uh, college students who I didn't really understand until the second day of the tour. It was a ten-day tour, were basically being groomed for jobs with the Department of Corrections, and a lot of them had parents who work as prison guards. So we would be on the tour and then the dad would come out to say hi to his daughter and he was a guard at that prison. And um, I was allowed to go on the tour by this professor who led it because he was retiring. He didn't want a writer coming on his tour because he felt that it would anger the wardens with whom he'd been cultivating this relationship over decades. And I'd been trying to go on his tour for a long time. Um, but right before he retired, he said, you can come on my tour. 
And um, when we were on that tour, you, we would go in each prison into what's called the investigative services unit, which is like the Scotland Yard of the prison, you know, where they're like figuring out what the incarcerated people are up to. And they have monitors and they have um, all the uh, homemade knives, all the like shivs that they have found. They have a board and they're very proud of it. It's like they're Wunderkammer, you know, and they're like, look at our stuff. <laughs> And the other thing they really want to show you when you go into the ISU unit is their home edited, what is it called, a pastiche? Their home edited medley of um, killings on their prison yards from closed circuit video. And um, they made us watch it. And I watched this in almost every maximum security men's facility that I went to. And in two of eight, they had put Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle as a soundtrack. So it was the repeat of that phenomenon of that song that was notable, but not exactly surprising. And I guess I was also surprised that I was able to watch that and then remain who I am. Um, and, but that's more about me than about prisons. And the, oh, this is the thing I was telling somebody last night is like, people can send ice cream through the toilets. And that just seemed so impossible. <laughs> I didn't believe it, but um, it works. Uh, because you, you wrap, this is in the women's prison, you, you wrap the ice cream in Kotex pads and it's like insulation and then you put it in saran wrap and then you have a line on the riser and they use the plumbing riser as like a male chute. And um, it just goes right down, and then you unwrap it, and it's still cold. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 